So I left Vinyl Haven, Maine, that beautiful island that I like to refer to as the Bermuda Triangle of Happiness, and I got back on the mainland, and, and I decided to spend some time with my friends who I knew out in San Francisco, and they had moved back to Maine um, to set up a farm, which is absolutely spectacular. And while I was there, I was riding around on my motorcycle doing some little kind of day trips and exploring mid-coast Maine and looking at some of the beautiful museums and galleries and farms. And um, I end up posting a photo on Instagram, my friend's farm, the Dooryard Farm in Camden, Maine, and Cooper Marina and their young son, Julian. And then I end up uh, getting a note from a friend of mine in New York, and she says, hey, I have a really good friend who lives in Camden, Maine. And I said, well, introduce us. And I end up reaching out to this woman named Caitlin, and I know nothing about her, and I invite her to come over for dinner at my friend's house. For various reasons, she ends up arriving, and my friends are cooking dinner and need a little bit of time, and so we end up going for a swim, and and I just become enchanted with this person. So the long and short of it is that I end up having this really amazing connection with this woman, and I'm getting to know her, and I'm excited about getting to know her, um, and nothing romantic is happening, but I'm just kind of like enamored with her and her mind, and um, how she thinks and interacts with the world and her creative spirit and pursuits. And um, and then she tells me about this Union Fair, and I'm like, well, we got to go to the fair. And so she and I end up going to the, the Union Fair, and that night, you know, I'm kind of getting butterflies, and I'm not sure if she's at all interested in me. And, um, and I don't know, I mean, I'm on a cross-country motorcycle trip, so I'm not thinking that, you know, now's a good time to like try to start up any romantic endeavor but there's some energy there that needs to get explored that's kind of how it felt and but you know I was frankly a little bit weak sauce on this one and so we're riding the ferris wheel and we do a round of the ferris wheel and the whole time I'm like I should try to kiss her I should try to kiss her and uh you know I don't and we go around and play games throughout the union fair which is awesome and watch horse poles and all this kind of stuff and the whole time that we were getting to know each other, I, I was communicating with her about the project, and I was just really taken um, by her willingness and interest in the project and how I was feeling about things. And she was kind of the first person that really um, went deep with me on the project. You know, most of the other places that I had visited friends, it was only for a night or so, and, and I was on the road so much. And I decided to stay a few days here in this area and um, so on that second, you know, uh, lap around the fair, I decided, hey, do you want to ride the Ferris wheel again? She was like, sure. And the sun was going down. And so we get on the Ferris wheel and there's this really, you know, kind of carny type character that puts us in the seats and, um, we're cruising and right at the top of the Ferris wheel, it's absolutely stunning. The sun is just perfect. And, you know, I'm like, I got to kiss her. I got to kiss her. It's got to happen. And before I can make a move, she looks at me and she says, what are you thinking? said, well, I'm debating whether or not to kiss you. And she says, well, you should. And so we end up kissing, and it's absolutely like sparks flying and all that good stuff that you want. It's kind of like a movie-esque experience, though it would be better if I just would have been a bold person and just made the move to kiss her. But um, long story short, it worked out great. And um, I end up staying for a few days, and you know, just before I'm about to leave, um, I ask her if she'd be interested in riding on the motorcycle 
and she says, you know, she's ambivalent, which, you know, is kind of, kind of takes me aback because, you know, I'm, I'm on a cross-country motorcycle trip, lady. What are you talking about? You know, is this not attractive to you? And it's very clear that it is not, you know, it's, it's really not of interest to her. Um, <laughs> and, but she's like, yeah, sure, I guess. And so, you know, we get her my jacket and put the helmet on and I start pulling the bike out. And when I pull on the clutch, snap, my clutch cable snaps. And once that, sl- that clutch cable snapped, my life took a very interesting turn. Um, you know, up at that, until that point, I was really moving through this project fast. I was traveling a lot of miles to meet with these men, and that was my focus. And the motorcycle was my vehicle to get across the country. But that, without that clutch cable, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't going anywhere. And so I'm kind of really bummed and I'm like, oh man, I got to figure out, I got this old 1979 BMW motorcycle. I got to figure out where to order the part. And, and just when I'm starting to get a little bit frustrated, her neighbor comes over who happens to be the father of a friend of mine that I had just met. Um, and he says, Hey, you know, that's so funny. Just last week, my clutch cable for my 1980 BMW motorcycle snapped. I know exactly where to order it. I actually have it saved up on my computer right now. Come on over. And so I go over. We order the exact part. Um, and he's like, don't worry. It's very simple. I'll show you exactly how to do it. It won't take you time. But it's going to take you four days to get the part shipped. And I was like, oh, gosh, this is setting me back. And, you know, I, you know, Caitlin and I are having this connection, and I don't know what that's going to look like and it was kind of like I'm going away and we'll see if we reconnect and but the universe was like nope you're not going anywhere and so he turns to me and says well what are you going to do while it ships and I said ah geez I don't know he said why don't you come out on a boat with me I've got to help some family friends out we're going to go on a schooner and uh, for those of you who don't know which I didn't a schooner is one of those tall long wooden ships with usually three masts totally stunning And he was going to take out a group of knitters. Uh, You heard me correct. Knitters. A group of men and women who knit during the whole cruise through the Penobscot Bay, which is just dozens and dozens of islands here in mid-coast Maine. And he said, why don't you come out? You can help me, you know, maybe you can make some pies on board and see the stars and go for some swims. And, you know, it's a good way to spend three or four nights uh, while you wait for the part to ship. So I agreed, and what ended up happening over those couple, you know, more or less 10 days is that I went out and I had this amazing adventure, perfect weather, swimming every day and sailing around the Penobscot Bay, which is a world-famous sailing bay, and then I got back on land, I got reconnected with Caitlin, and my heart was a flutter, and our relationship started to blossom, and she invites me to a wedding, and we go to this wedding, and now I'm starting to fall in love with this woman. I'm like, what am I going to do here? I'm supposed to move to San Francisco. That's my plan. That's my trajectory on my personal life. And on the project, I got to keep moving. And, you know, she isn't so supportive. And she's like, you know, we'll see what happens with life. But this is a beautiful thing that we're sharing. And, and so eventually and amazingly, I end up kind of having healthy transition with, you know, Caitlin and I, you know, just basically devise a system to keep in touch and I feel no pressure from her and nor expectations and she is incredibly insightful and supportive with the project and I mean really indebted to her throughout um 
my whole trip and now I am speaking into this microphone in the backyard of my house that I have recently bought on four acres in the middle of the woods and um, I'm a couple of miles from that bay that embarked on for the sailing trip and Caitlin is in the living room and I'm in love with her which is great and was unexpected on this trip. I guess the reason I want to note that and and I'm happy to talk more uh, (laughs) with you dear listener um, about this but a couple main things Uh, you know I'm coming off of this time on Vinyl Haven Island and I basically have my heart rekindled in a romantic way while my heart is opening as I think about forgiving my father I'm thinking about the idea of you know, how to not define him by his death and his his decision to end his own life. And I'm trying to understand how to feel, not think about the loss of my father, but to feel it. And as I'm meeting with more of these men, I'm starting to see um, how some of these men have really em- embraced the emotions around their loss and how to understand that for them to make their own life better um, or at least be more in touch with their own emotions. And so... I get on my bike and I ride for three or four long days, two days fully in the rain, from morning till night, full-on rainstorm. Um, I'm basically like a wet rat on a speeding bullet cutting across New England to meet up with the man who you're about to hear, who um, I came to get to in contact with Max. We have a mutual friend in common, one of my very best friends, and so... Uh, Max got wind of the project through Facebook, and and next thing you know, he's like, hey, come on by if you're coming through Vermont. And so I finally get there, and I have wet underwear, wet pants, and there is Stowe, Vermont, which is a totally stunning setting. And Max is a restaurant entrepreneur. He's a chef. He's opened a few restaurants, and the only time that we're able to meet is between his lunch and dinner service. And I know very little about Max. Um, but I, I just, the main thing that I do know is that he's also an only child. And I was really excited to meet with someone who was also an only child to understand how he navigated some of those challenges once his father had passed, you know, with my mom and I being so close, I would imagine I was assuming Max was, would have a similar relationship. And so, you know, I end up showing up kind of really battered from the road and from the rain and Max greets me at his restaurant and he's like let's go up the mountain so we get up to some of these condos uh, at the top of this mountain and we're overlooking a, a really beautiful setting and Max begins right away and he basically takes me on a journey and this conversation was seamless for me uh, with a lot of emotional kind of roller coasters but needed ones and he really opened up my heart a lot and I and I hope that um, he does the same for you so here's Max when I was born my mom was 20 and my dad was 22 so we all very much grew up together you know um, I was a hippie kid they took me with them wherever they went they had summers off I had summers off so I, I spent a lot of time with my parents as a kid both my parents were woodshop teachers so they're very hands-on uh, you know, sort of uh, builders. They've, they've, you know, they we built our home in Connecticut, and uh, when my dad died, they were in the process of building a second home to sell the first one and move up here. 
um, which my mom works on every day now. But they, you know, he was he was my business partner. He was my best friend. He was my best man at my wedding. We were close and tight. And then, um, you know, the last I'd say probably a year, le less than a year, the last year before he died, um, our relationship started to get strained because of his you know his sort of his behavior we went through sort of a role reversal where I was the one that was like hey get your shit together what are you doing what's going on why are you being this way and um, things ended on a sour note but I would have to say that 99% of my experience with my father was was overwhelmingly positive so as, as the course of the last summer you know he retired in June and was working on the house all, all summer with my uncle and his behavior got strange and uh, him and my mom were sort of at each other because of his drinking and you know she was sort of hypocritical in that regard but she could still maintain and she'd get a couple glasses of wine in her and she'd have kind of a sharp tongue and um, and our relationship started to devolve because he just his uh, his you know after let's say five o'clock in the afternoon you never knew what you were gonna get you know after a while um i started you know, like i said there was a certain role reversal where i was just like what are you doing get your shit together like grow up uh you know and my mom was what are you doing get your shit together and so the specific instance that went down was basically um my mom uh was in connecticut teaching and my dad was up here and uh let's see there was a wednesday there was a wednesday night my uncle had gone back to his family, which is about an hour and a half north of us, up in Middlebury. Um, he would work like three or four days at a time and then go home for a day or two. And um, I stopped by, you know, one night to to see my dad. Uh, they, they, the, the, the house was finished enough where they were actually sort of encamped in the basement with everything enclosed. And my uncle had like a little plasticized bedroom down there it was you know uh, November they had a heater in there a couple of beds and a toilet and a TV set up and stuff and I stopped by to see him one evening I think and uh, you know at 7 30 8 o'clock 8 30 and he was incoherent like un, un, un unreachable <laughs> and uh, I guess my mom had tried calling him and at first he didn't answer and then he did answer and he was incoherent and and uh you know i sort of got there and was like shaking him and he was just like out of it and uh you know she called me and was very concerned and and i didn't know what to do and i was pissed and uh like the next day he he called me and he was like hey you know did you stop by last night i said like, yeah and, you know well your mom's all mad at me she won't talk to me and um you know i told her i just had a couple beers i was just really tired and it was just this lying and sort of covering up alibi type of shit and um i'll never forget like i gave him this brow beating and you know i just i fucking hammered him like i have that part of me that's like my mom and i was just like you know what are you doing like you know is this what you retired for to to get shit faced every night and not make any sense and you know mom's mad at you you come into the restaurant you're mumble you know you're you're, you're slurring your words and you know mick is my uncle is all laughing and joking with everybody and you're just sort of sitting there like a bump on a log and everybody's like what's up with him and you know what's going on with you like you're just i don't you know i, I don't want to hang i don't want to be in this situation like i don't I, you know i was like in his face about it and he was in their half-built house all by himself and you know was in a bad way and i don't know if he was just drunk or maybe he took some pills and you know, he had his own private physician and, 
you know, at, some, at one point he was having anxiety issues and maybe he was Xanaxing and whiskeying or who knows, um, you know. But all I know is that my mom and I were both, like, coming down on him. And, you know, she was definitely giving him the, like, I'm not going to live with you if this is going to be this way. And this isn't the way I want to spend my elder years is taking care of a drunk. And so basically, uh, I, you know, I just, I, I, I read him the riot act. I was like, listen, man, if you want to kill yourself, do it. Just don't do it around me and my children. Like, don't do it. Y you know, if you're going to self-destruct, do it somewhere else. Like, I'll drive you to Florida. You can get a nice box under a bridge in the Keys and join the rest of the winos and whatever. But, you know, like, a lot of people care about you, and they're watching you go down a road that we don't want you to go down. And, you know, it's an embarrassment, and you're embarrassing yourself. It's like you taught me to be a man and chin up and chest out and firm upper lip and do what you say and say what you do. And, like, and you're not that guy. You're not, you're not, you're becoming not that guy. And uh, it's hard for me to deal with, and it's hard for me to watch. And, uh you know, and I said to him, listen, if you want to Brattleboro retreat or, you know, uh, if you need to go away for a while, you know, and maybe come back. And he's like, oh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. And, uh, yeah, your mom won't talk to me. And so he's like, well, you know, she's coming up tomorrow night, so so we'll deal with it. And I just sort of distanced myself for a day. And actually, in that day, I made some phone calls. And I made some phone calls to a place called the Brattleboro Retreat, which is like a, you know, a recovery treatment mental health institution down in Brattleboro and you know some of those kinds of places and said hey here's what's going on what can I do and they were like well really you know you can't have anybody committed for this kind of stuff unless they're you know unless there's crime involved um, it'd have to be on his own free will and he doesn't sound like he wants to do that but you know maybe you want to bring him down for just a talk and and so I sort of let it go and then the sort of the word you know, and I was busy doing my own stuff and, and, and trying to process it. And in the meantime, apparently, you know, my mom can be a very spiteful, angry person at times. And basically, she was really, really pissed at him. And so I guess basically what happened was she was like, I'm not coming to Vermont this weekend. I'm not dealing with this shit. You need to come home so that we can figure some stuff out. Basically, she told him to come to Connecticut. And then um, I guess at the last minute said screw that, I've got stuff to do in Vermont. I'm going to tell him to come home and I'm going to go to Vermont and he can sit here all alone for a couple of days like I do three to three or four days a week and see how it feels to be lied to. And, you know, because my dad would be like, what are you talking about? I wasn't drinking. And, you know, he used to, he'd sneak and lie and he'd, you know, he'd hide shit down in the basement where she couldn't find it and, and he'd act like it was a game. And he certainly instilled a certain amount of like, hey, whatever you can get away with that your spouse doesn't know about is, is your freedom as a married man or as a, you know, as a whatever. But he wasn't hiding hookers. <laughs> he was hiding booze. He wasn't hiding girly mags. He was hiding booze. So basically that's what happened. And it was unbeknownst to me. Like my dad said, well, I'm going, I got to go home this weekend. Uh, you know, it's your mom, you know, your mom's obviously really pissed at me. And so uh, I'll see you next week. And I was like, yeah, hopefully when you get back, we can work something out, man, because this can't continue like this. And he was like, I know, I know. Um, and he got in his car and said goodbye to my uncle. And, you know, my uncle, in retrospect, because we've talked about it a lot, said, yeah, he just, he looked different. He looked like, in retrospect, he looked like he was never going to see me again. He got in his truck and drove to Connecticut. And at the same time, my mom got in her car and drove to Vermont and they probably passed each other on the interstate somewhere and um, and no shit 
she left him a bottle of vodka and she basically put it on the counter and left him a note saying, I've gone to Vermont, how do you like being lied to? Have a great weekend. And she left. And my dad got home. And I didn't know, I didn't know any of this. I, all I know is that my dad said he was going home. Next thing I know, it's six or seven o'clock Friday night. We're in the kitchen at the restaurant. My mom shows up and I said, what are you doing here? And she said, I've got too much shit to do to deal with his crap. Um, he, he's in Connecticut. He's got stuff to do down there for the weekend. And that's all I knew. Um, and I didn't call him. Um, and I, I didn't know that she left him that note. I didn't know anything. And, uh, so I have, he has, he has two sisters. Uh, one of them lives about 20 minutes away and one of them lives about an hour away. And his older sister lives about an hour away. Her husband, um, is this pretty uptight former school superintendent. And apparently my mom, I'm not, I'm not quite sure how it went down, but my mom, um, I guess maybe called them and said, Hey, you know, Bill's, Bill's having some problems and he, he, I think he needs some help and I, 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 I don't know what to do. And so my uncle, I think, called him up and said, hey, you want to go Christmas shopping? And, and they went Christmas shopping and they went out to lunch. And, you know, like I said, uh, all this stuff came to me after the fact. Then they talked about it and I guess my dad said to my uncle as my uncle was dropping him off, like, hey, Dave, do you, do you think I, I'm an alcoholic? And I guess... My uncle was like, yeah, yeah, Bill, I, I think you are. I think it's something that you need to get a handle on. And my dad was like, huh. And that's all he said. He you know, got out of the car Saturday afternoon, went into the house. So Sunday morning, we're at the restaurant. My mom's in the office. Uh, I'm, on, I'm in the kitchen. My wife's at home with the girls. And uh, about 10.30, I get a call from my other aunt his younger sister, um, who apparently uh, called to try to get in touch with my dad um, that morning. They're, they were going to go to breakfast. I think everybody was sort of in this, like, what can we do crisis mode. So she called me and she said, Max, I'm at your parents' house, and it's very strange. Your dad's truck's in the yard. There's lights on in the house. Uh, there's a note on the table uh, that I guess your mom wrote and a bottle of vodka that's unopened and there's some writing on the note I think it says something to the effect of I could my mom said the note said something like how do you like being lied to uh, something about dying I hope not I hope you die but I hope you know you're gonna die or this is gonna kill you or something like that and then my dad had written something on it also. And that, was, that never really became clear. It was something like, I could, you know, or you have no idea or something like that. So my aunt's like, the door's open, the house is unlocked, there's lights on, uh, the TV's going, and uh, your dad's not here. And I'm a little worried. And I just remember going into like full on panic mode. And I was just like, oh fuck, what's going on? What's going on? Uh, maybe he took a walk in the woods. Um, and so I kind of went into the office and said to my mom, like, hey, what, what's going on? And uh, phone rings again, and it's my aunt, and she's like, we found your father. Uh, he's behind the shed, and he shot himself, and he's dead. It just went, Ooh. I mean, uh, 
my mom's in the office at the restaurant. Um, so I called my house and told my wife. And so she got in the car and came down. I think she left the girls at home. Um, and then I went into the office and told my mom. And uh, we, I think we maybe had a table or two at that point. I told the wait staff, and they sort of ushered everybody out the door. We locked the door. My mom was just fucking hysterical. It's my fault. I killed him. I killed him. And then everything was just a fucking blur at that point that, like, my mom is inconsolable, obviously. I mean, she's, she's just hysterical, and I'm in absolute shock. So I, I basically took the better part of two weeks off, um, and it went by in a heartbeat, just being in the house all day with my mom and just trying to make sense of things. And it just, it's amazing how many days can go by when you're in absolute shock. It seems like I, when I look back and say, wow, I, I, I didn't really leave my house for anything but like food and basics for 14 days. And, uh, you know, my mom and, you know, it helped to have relatives coming and visiting and talking about it. And there's a lot of talking about it. and you know, my uncle and, and what his impression of it. And, you know, things all became very clear to a lot of people in hindsight, myself included. And that, that's sort of the rub of the situation is that you, you'd never see it until it happens. But if you saw it, you could have prevented it from happening, maybe. Um, I don't know how I feel about, you know, a lot of talk lately <clears throat> with all the Robin Williams stuff about suicide prevention and, and all that kind of stuff. I, I'm not so sure that when somebody has their mind set on doing something like that, you're going to talk them out of it. It's, it becomes a it becomes a sneaky thing. You know, it's like their notion in their head and uh, they're not telling you about it because they know you're going to try to talk them out of it and they don't want to be talked out of it. And so, you know, the way that I deal with things is with knowledge and information. I'm, I'm not a person of faith. I, I don't, I don't, I have faith in science and statistics. That's about where my faith ends. Um, I'm not a religious person. I'm not a, any of that kind of stuff. So for me to try to figure stuff out and put a handle on things, uh, it was all information. And I just read like a motherfucker. I just, every book I could possibly pick up on, every internet website about suicide and depression and all that kind of stuff, I just, that's all I did. And the more I read them, I was just like, yep, that's my dad. Yep, that's my dad. Like, uh, callousness to blood and death. Got it. Check. You know, he was, he was a medic in Vietnam. He was a deer hunter. He was a hunter in general since he was a kid. So, so killing things and gutting them and eating them and you know all that kind of stuff, he was okay with that. Uh, comfortability around the chosen instrument of death, if you will. Um, you know, one of the factors I read is that men overwhelmingly choose firearms, except for doctors. Doctors choose uh, medication. It's because doctors are more comfortable with syringes and and opiates than they are with firearms, you know, but your average Joe that's going to have too much and want to end it is going to do it with a pistol or a gun because that's what he feels comfortable with. There was just a myriad of different factors that made you say, oh, absolutely. Like in hindsight, it totally makes sense. It, com it makes complete sense that this is what he wanted to do. And then, you know, there's the feelings and they talk about that where like, uh, you know, he felt like he, his usefulness on the planet was, was dwindling, that he, he was becoming a burden to, to the people that he cared about, um, that for whatever reason, he, there was some shame involved in, in his life that he was feeling um, not, so, not so good about himself. My dad used to say stuff like, ain't nobody gonna wipe Bill Turner's ass but Bill Turner. You know what I mean? 
uh, the, the thought of him going into a nursing home and, you know, and he used to talk about it. It, we, it would come up in conversation every now and then, either when some elderly aunt or uncle had to go to a nursing home or whatever that, you know, okay, Mr. Turner, roll over, time to wipe your bottom. Like to him, that was the ultimate indignity. And he was petrified of that. You know, he used to say, the only way I'm leaving this house is feet first with a sheet over my face. You know, if I ever get to the point where I have to go to a home, just fucking shoot me mm-hmm. that you know, he used to you know and that was a big issue to him he, it was i'm not gonna say a preoccupation but it was definitely like you know my aunt will swear to this day i always knew that that's how your dad would go out and it's like boy i wish you had told me that 10 years ago i might have started looking for signs a little bit sooner and she said you know she says that but then she says you know i also to a certain extent didn't see it coming and so it was this sort of i call it a perfect storm of all of the shit and then I, you know, I, I weigh it sometimes in my head and I say, boy, had my dad, had my mom not left him that note or what if she had just stayed in Connecticut for the weekend and, and they had worked it out or, you know, what if, uh, you know, they were both in Vermont for the weekend and then Monday morning we decided we were going to go take a ride to Serenity Hills or what, whatever, you know, but I just, you know, a lot of times my wife and I talk about it a lot. I, I don't know if he would have ever capitulated to that kind of thing. I think he knew that he needed to quit drinking. Uh, I think he knew that he that he needed to get that stuff under control. And um, I think when he was faced with a life of sobriety, um, he just decided that, nah, uh, I don't want to do that. And um, to him, I, I can't imagine ever coming to that conclusion, but he just came to the conclusion that, you know what, uh, I've lived a good 57 years and uh, everybody around me is starting to give me a hard time for the guy that I want to be. I guess he just got to a place where he decided that it was going to be on his terms. And uh, I've never been so surprised by something in my life. But then once I started sitting down and reading about it and um, sort of looking at the common denominators that he he had, um, it was just like, holy shit, how did I not see this coming? And that was that was tough to sort of get through, um, the fact that you know I, I was his I was his boy, best friend, best man. Did I let him down? Did I uh, take a little bit too hard of a tone? Because um, you don't look at it as a disease; you look at it as a behavior. You know, hey man, what the fuck? Get your shit together. Why are you being such an asshole? Um, instead of going, hey dad, you know, come on, let's go get, you know, you've got a cancer, <laughs> in essence, let's go get it treated. Um, I didn't look at it like that because I didn't know. I got educated and um, sort of enlightened after the fact. And therein lies the rub sometimes that if, if I had known then what I know now, things might have been different. But I can't, I can't live like that. Yeah, I can't. It took me a long time. Maybe I still am. It's hard to reconcile the fact that someone that you love is both the perpetrator and the victim of a crime. That's the hardest part to sort of get at, you know. If, you're, if your loved one was killed by somebody, then you look at that person and be like, fuck you. But when the person is both the perp and the victim, you're, you're, trying to juxta- you know, you're trying to find some sense between anger at the, the violence of the crime committed and sympathy and sorrow at the loss of the victim of the crime. But when, when the same person is one and the same, it's a very hard thing to try to... I almost think sometimes I'm lucky in the fact that it's so hard to reconcile that they both cancel each other out and sort of leave me 
hanging somewhere in the middle between anger and sorrow that has sort of let given me a free pass to a certain extent um you know that just makes it a little bit a little bit easier to deal with well i can tell you that the first thing that it did in me is make me realize that i needed to look for help because i looked at him and said why why didn't he just talk to somebody it's tough i mean i have to say that uh you know I, i started counseling um i started taking medication for for my own depression um which I don't know. I don't know if you could say that it was depression more so than just sort of helping me cope, because I was having a really hard time with it. Um, all of a sudden, I got my mom as as a dependent, um, not not financially, mm-hmm. but certainly from a um, from an emotional standpoint. I, I now you know have to be there for my mom and be the strong guy, and you know it's uh, uh, I'm surrounded by women. <laughs> You know, d- my dad and I were the two two islands of of uh, masculinity. You know, I got I'm an only child with a with a widowed mom and a wife and two girls, and um, it made me much more introspective. I think um, um, I've been on Lexapro for almost eight years. Um, I debate whether or not to be on or off it on any given day. You know, I, I go talk to my physician about it, and it's like, well, if you were on you know, if your body's not making something it needs to, you wouldn't say, hey, doc, how long should I be on insulin before I stop? I think it, it made me more resilient. I mean, I, d- I definitely have to say that um, now that I've been through that, like, barring the loss of my daughter, who means the world to me, I don't think there's anything I can't handle. And it's sort of ironic because I got it from my dad and it's still in my bathroom at my house and he brought it to read and to have me read and it's the Carlson shit you know don't sweat the small stuff and it's all small stuff and don't sweat the small stuff at work and don't um which is sort of ironic that my dad gave me all that stuff because he very much sweated the small stuff and it killed him but it made me it made me see how selfish isn't the right word it annoys me when people say that that people that commit suicide were being selfish or they were being a coward it's fucking stupid um, it takes balls, uh, you know, all this stuff with Robin Williams lately and, uh, what a, you know, coward to leave uh, you're in pain. You genuinely feel that you're doing the right thing, not just for yourself, but everybody around you. That was part of his mentality, both with me, her, you know, everybody around him. He thought that everybody was ashamed of him, uncomfortable around him, and he wasn't far off, but it made me see that whatever situation you're in the people that truly love you would much prefer you're around whatever state you're in than 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 to be silenced it's ironic that i you know and and i've like i said with all this reading i did that it tells you that the you know the the um the loved ones of people that commit suicide are the ones that are more likely to do it in the future and that always that flabbergasted me because it was like how what how that's That's like saying, you know, the children of people who die of lung cancer are more likely to be smokers. Well, it's true, because you learn habits. Um, Mm -hmm. I have to honestly say that I guess it's made me think about suicide more, only in the effect to rule it out. Like, I don't think I would ever have the balls to do that. Not in any way, shape, or form. So I guess it's, it's scared some introspection into me and why I am the way I am. Um, and, and how I make the decisions I do and, um, 
and uh, it's definitely made me closer with my mom. Um, she carries a, a a bag of guilt that uh, I can't, you know. I tried to get her to go to counseling. She went a couple of times. I tried to get her to stop drinking. Not ever going to happen. Um, I tried to get her to look at medication. Not ever going to happen. Um, she's a she's a stubborn, tough woman, and um, she just gets up every day and works on their house that they were building together and um, I think has found some semblance of peace because time does heal but watching her go through the past seven years has been brutal it's been brutal on me just to see how much it has aged her and and drain I mean they were you know, high school sweethearts you know they were married for I uh, so I was 34 when he died so they had been married 36 years and it's left a big hole in my life. I mean, you know, I, I, there's not a day that goes by that uh, something doesn't occur that I wish he was there to share or witness. My dad was a larger than life guy. He was loved by everybody. And in my dreams is where I hang out with my dad. I think half the time that's why I like to sleep. It's sort of a conundrum for me because I like to drink. So when I have, you know, four or five beers before I go to bed, I don't really dream. Uh, and I imagine this was his for sort of uh, is his sort of pattern too, you know. You stay up till two o'clock in the morning with a bunch of beers in your system. By five, six in the morning, you've sort of sobered up, and and the alcohol has left your system. Now you go into your actual legit sleep patterns. So, goddamn, I have some awesome dreams between ten a.m. and one o'clock in the afternoon, if I'm allowed to sleep that late with my schedule and the family and all that kind of stuff. And uh, to me, that's you know, that's my movies, that's my TV. I don't. I don't go to the movies a lot. I don't, I don't even, unfortunately, read that much anymore. I dream for two or three hours a day of just crazy shit, and, and he's there. Could be weird, could be normal, we could be fishing, we could be driving a rocket ship, who knows. You know, I, I, don't, I don't wallow in sadness, and I try not to wallow in anger. Um, my wife is, and I, you know, we, we butt heads a lot, but we've, we've tried to make the past couple years be a little bit more like, hey, we don't have to be angry about stuff. Like, we can just let it go. Let's not hold grudges. Let's not get angry. Let's not whatever. And, and the whole process has been very hard on her. She was very close with my dad. For several years there, she almost spent more time with him than she did with me because I was working 14, 16 hours a day, and my mom and dad were at our house having dinner and projects and, you know, hanging out with the girls or, you know, they would go to the beach together or they'd be able to get away and go on vacation, and there was Max still working. You know, there was that part of it, but from a, when do I allow myself? I don't know. That's that's a good question. Like, uh, I have to say that I, after the first month or maybe two of uh, after he died, uh, I didn't cry anymore. I didn't, I didn't get sad about it. Um, I just sort of, like you said, it's, it's uh it's sort of analyzing or being analytic more analytical about it um and i guess that keeps you from being overly emotional because uh, that's something i've always it's always bothered me um uh and honestly um i think i hide behind chemicals a lot um more than i would care to admit on a daily basis um i could tell you what i wish has would have happened in the past 10 years and that's or eight years is that my mom had gotten has gotten sober because that that's pretty difficult for me to deal with is her you know she can and, and like I said I'm, I'm a hypocrite I like my beer I like my whiskey I like my tequila I like my grass 
but like my mom, I still get up and do my shit every day. I run two restaurants. You know, I, I have a busy life despite all that stuff because um, I find time to wedge it all in. I wish that it had been a turning point in her life to better herself or use it to move on. I think she's just essentially going through life missing half of her being because they were what they were together. And it's that's hard to see, and it's hard to see the only medication that she has is, is a bottle of wine, which is sort of ironic in the grand scheme of things. But, uh, you know, if there's one thing that I could wish is that it put her on a different path. But it didn't do that to me. You know, I remember when he died, I was like, that's it, I'm never drinking again. And, you know, it's evil, and look what it did to him, and it ruined my family. And then a week later, I'm like, yeah, I kind of want a beer. It's been a long day, <laughs> you know? The only, the, the only thing... I think from a um, from an advice standpoint, uh, and it sounds so cliche, is don't blame yourself. That that that's the that's the, and maybe that's my own defense mechanism. Like, you you know, like I said, the last seventy two hours that my dad was on this planet, um, I was not the nicest person to him, um, but I didn't know what I was dealing with and how to deal with it at the time. A. And B, I think that once people are in that mode, if they're determined, it's going to happen. Like I think back to like, like I was saying, what if my mom had stayed in Connecticut or what if my dad had been up here? I, I'm not so sure it wouldn't have just been at a different time for a different reason. I, I think that he, at, at some point, um, it becomes an acceptable option in your head. Um, and not many of us can relate to that. And... Um, and I think that that's part of it, that, that there's this, um, oh, there's something I could have done or I should have said or I should have known or I should have seen. Part of the situation is that they know that the way that they are feeling is abnormal and will be judged uh, harshly. And if um, too much is said, somebody's going to try to stop you. And that's not what you want. Even if you're not convinced that it's what you definitely want to do, you definitely, that, you want that to be your decision. You know what I mean? You want that to be your uh, final say. Maybe some intervention can help. The trouble is, is you have, to wanna, you have to want to step away from the edge. And if you're convinced that the edge is the only way to go is that way, you're not going to want to step away. Like that's the, I stop and think like, how many conversations could I have had with him where I actually convinced him? that the rest of his life was worth living and that everybody else around him would be less of a person and have their lives diminished by him being gone? And would I have been able to get that to sink into his head? And would I have been able to get him to not just nod his head and say he agreed with me so that I would shut up and go away, but actually believe it and indoctrinate it into his soul and step away from that ledge? And I think that for, you know, for a, for a, a guy trying to figure out why their dad did that or didn't do it or whatever. But I think the bottom line is at the end of the day, beating yourself up for it and blaming yourself for the outcome of someone else's life, it isn't going to get you anywhere. That, that, it's just not productive. You know, I watched my mom, my mom beats, you know, to this day, you know, I killed him. I left that note. I left him there. I lied to him. Uh, I put him in a position where he had the time, motive, and opportunity to do it by himself. And had I been there that weekend or had he been here that weekend, it wouldn't have happened. And my response to that is, you don't know that.
very early on in the process, the shock and the, and the, you know, the heal, whatever, the emotional process, um, I made a subconscious decision, I guess, to just, I refuse to take blame for this. Um, and some reconciliation of the fact that a person in that situation must have to be really hurting. They have to, they must, they're in a lot of pain. Um, and at least that pain is gone. Like I'm still ruminating over it. I'm still ruminating over me saying to my dad, you know what, if you're gonna do it, just do it. Stop dicking around, stop killing yourself slowly, go find a fucking bridge, you know. Um, I, I, but the people that love you and care about you cannot continue to watch you go down this road. Um, and I thought I was trying to push him in the right direction. And um, maybe the way he heard it helped to push him in the wrong direction. I'm the one that's still sitting here ruminating over that. He's not. You know, in an instant, all the shit that he was feeling and all the pain and the anguish and the doubt and the self-loathing or the all of those things that, that, that broiled up inside him to make him come to that conclusion came to a peaceful end in a violent way, but it came to a peaceful end. And I guess there's some consolation in that. Um... The fact that they did it and we're going to and you can't blame yourself, there's some consolation in that. And then I think the ultimate cliche of all uh, is that time heals everything. Um, and that's the only other advice I could give to somebody, I think, is to just take care of yourself and the people around you um, that are left and, and talk to them about it and let them know that it it's not their fault. You know, that's, like I said, I refuse to take blame. I didn't make him drink. I didn't make him depressed. Um, the only thing I did was act in the manner that I thought was best, which is the manner that my dad had taught me how to act, which is, hey, what the fuck is the matter with you? Pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, get your shit together, act like a man, and deal with your issues. And um, he took that and said, see you later. And to a, there's a part of me that's annoyed at that. I'm not ashamed. I'm not he did what he did it's not an embarrassment to me it's not you know I'm not embarrassed that my dad killed himself or ashamed of what he did um I'm disappointed I'm disappointed that he thought that that was the best way to deal with his situation but I believe that at that moment his feelings and emotions were genuine and how can you argue with that if that's the way that somebody honestly feels and they act upon the way they honestly feel then you can't really fault them for that, especially if you're sick, you know. But it's uh, it's never going to be easy for anybody. Um, time heals a lot. Well, if you could hear your father say anything, what would you want to hear? <sighs> I don't know. Nothing. Um, I don't. There's really nothing to say. You know, like, I think, I think he would be regretful, but honestly, I, I don't know what I would want him to say, that it was a dumb move. You know, they always say that it's, it's a, it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Um, that's, there's nothing he can say at this point. The proof is in the pudding and, you know, there's no... There's no turning back the clock. It's one thing you definitely learn in life is that 
it's always forward yeah i don't know uh, apology i guess um but i guess i feel like he let himself down more than he let me down that's the thing is that he's not here to see everything that we're all still doing and there there's that's that's where there's that's the shame of it you know is that there's so many things that i wish he could be a part of that he's not i'm still a part of them i'm still doing them you know and every single one of them almost to a t i go ah, i wish my dad was here i i struggle with it every day it's not an easy thing to admit uh, except maybe to my wife that like i drink too much and I say I drink too much, like not falling down, can't get out of bed. But, you know, according to what, you know, uh, National Health Institute or whatever says is that, you know, two to three drinks a day or no more than 10 a week, I blow that shit out of the water. I mean, I've been through points in my life where I've not actually curbed any of my bad habits. I've just increased my good ones. And I feel like a million bucks. Um, and now I sort of feel like I'm in a rut. And and the the ghost of my dad um, drives that home more. I mean, if there's one thing um, that I hope is through, you know, our conversation and your work is that it helps someone or something, either you or I and I, to sort of come to grips with our situations and our feelings or someone out there that just recently lost their dad. If I had become aware of some of this stuff before my dad died, maybe I could have done something about it. But learning from others and realizing that my situation is, it's not that um, rare, sadly, um, that I could help somebody or shed some light or um, you know, just sort of help them through that situation, then that's all we can really do in this world is try to help each other. You know, it's one of those things where it's a shitty circumstance to be in, to be the one left behind by somebody that decides that that's the way to go. And it, and it, you know, it has ripples throughout your whole life, but the ripples eventually get smaller and smaller and smaller. When you shine the light into the dark places, it helps to sort of get the bad things out. You know, it's been an interesting ride since that day. And uh, it, it sucked. It was the shittiest shittiest day anybody could ever imagine i can't underplay my mom's role that much but my dad was definitely more of the guy that um told me taught me to look out for clowns you know and i uh, was a really good sort of judge of character and people and whether they have class and honor and and integrity and all that kind of stuff and i think he instilled a lot of that in me so that i i naturally levitate towards people that have those things and i sort of naturally eschew the people that don't have those kinds of things. And um, that's sort of where in the irony lies is because I would never expect somebody that taught me all of those things um, to bitch out <laughs> in, a, in, a, in, a, in a very vulgar way of, of sort of putting it that he just sort of said, fuck this and left. And uh, that's been a hard part of maintaining my respect for him. Um, but that wasn't him. That wasn't the person that was, you know, that was him sick. And that's different than the person sane and healthy that raised me. And that, that's the hard part. And I think that it's, it's also important that um, in that situation you don't shit on the person too much. You know, that you have to understand that they were in a bad place and they just wanted the pain to stop. And uh, you can't fault somebody for that unless you're, you've been in that too. You know, I have a lot, of, uh, a lot of dadisms that I throw at people all the time because he, he's, 
you know and one of the biggest things my dad always used to say to me was never judge a man until you've walked a mile in his moccasins and uh, I can't imagine what it would have been like to be in a pair of moccasins that made me want to go behind my own woodshed and put a bullet through my head and uh, I hope I never get there <laughs> I sincerely hope I never get there that's it man when we finished the interview, we kind of looked at each other in silence, you know, when he said, and that's it. And I felt so connected to Max. Um, not only, as you can, you know, could hear, he's, he's a powerful storyteller, but he is honest. And his honesty around his conflicting emotions with his father and his own guilt and how he was navigating his support of his mom and how he was kind of able to separate some of the aspects um, of the language we use, you know, and in the way in which, you know, he really calls out, you know, suicide's not selfish, and, and no one had really pinpointed that, and I really believe that as well, and when he said that, that struck me so strongly. And what was really beautiful to me about Max's relationship with his father is how palpable their love for, or his love for his dad, and vice versa, no doubt, um, and how Max was you know, his dad was his best friend and how he really loved his father the best way that he knew how and how his dad taught him to love and kind of that, that strong manhood or masculine approach. And I appreciated how Max spoke about the perpetrator of a crime and the victim of the crime and the same person. And I'm not a fan. I, I'm, and I don't believe that when one takes their own life, they're committing a crime. I think they're you know, taking their own life and there's this died by suicide or, um, you know, ended their own life. You know, th this language I prefer than committed suicide, but there is an element of um, who's responsible, you know, and is society responsible? And it brought me back to thinking about Franklin and Paul Tedesco and others who spoke about the role of society. And I really appreciated how Max was able to speak so honestly from his own perspective um, throughout the whole interview. And, and when we were done, I gathered up my audio equipment and Max took me back down to his restaurant. We walked down the mountain and he walked me through the back of the kitchen and introduced me to his colleagues. And he sat me down on the bar and he said, you know, dinner's on me. You just let me know and I'm going to make you dinner. And he made me the most beautiful, spectacular dinner that I had had on the road. It was just such a treat. And... Once I was done, I, I got on my bike and I rode through the night down into a valley to find a campground and I ended up setting up my tent and making tea at night and just kind of thinking about the day and I was so grateful for Max. And after riding through those couple of days of straight rain and really needing to have another conversation to propel me with this project, especially after, you know, my, my heart and mind is so much on this possibility of this woman, Caitlin, that I had just met and kind of like, wait, should I really leave or what am I going to do here? And of course, I want to see the project through. So I knew I was going to leave, but I needed to have another collaborator, um, another person I was going to be able to interview who would draw me back into the project and help me recalibrate how I thought about my own emotions and especially around guilt. And Max did that. And I'm so grateful Coming up in the next interview, after Max, I head to Columbus, Ohio to meet with Chad. And Chad spoke so eloquently and openly about his relationship with his father 
and how conflicted it was. And here's a taste of what you're going to hear. I always felt loved, you know, maybe not in the moment when there was something really horrific happening, but, you know, the memories that I have of like what an average person experiences, I always felt loved. 